Hi, everybody. George here. Uh, I'm excited to share the news with our listeners that thanks to people just like you, we're being recognized by the Podcast Awards in not one but two categories, People's Choice and TV and Film. Uh, the nice thing about the Podcast Awards is that the first stage is grassroots-based, so while it's awesome to be nominated, we want to win, which means we need you to vote. Here's how. First, you go to podcastawards.com, and right at the top is a link that says click me to nominate my favorite podcasts. Uh, register your name and email so that you can be counted. And that'll take you to the actual voting page. People's Choice Awards are right at the top. Scroll down to the T section because we're under the instead of best, which is not perfect formatting, but whatever. Click us and do the same for TV and film, which is further down the page. It's nice and simple. Just save your votes. That's it. You're done. Tell your friends to vote too. We'll keep people updated, but spread the word and keep your fingers crossed and enjoy the episode. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you can see the comedy of today's guest with The Flat Earth or with the incredible shrinking Matt and Jackie, or he can teach you how to do it your dang self at the Philly Improv Theater. Matt Schmidt is here. How's it going, Matt? Hey, what's going on? I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you here. Why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself and your history with horror? Well, so I I grew up in a, a Stephen King family. (laughs) <laughs> so when, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> when I was younger, my uh, my parents had the uh, the the living room was full of bookshelves, and they had like a whole wall of just every Stephen King book. And I was always like fascinated by like the covers of them, especially the ones that were like from the eighties and like um, like The Shining had like this like horrible like green tint and the shrub uh, the the, right. the bush uh, lions <laughs> and all this stuff. So I was just like so interested in what these books were about, and my parents would give me synopsis of them, you know, like, and I loved, uh, like, the Stephen King miniseries, uh, ABC's The Shining Apologist. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't seen it since I was a little kid, but truly horrified me as a little kid. I probably saw it way, way before I should have, but The Stand also. So it's just, like, sort of, like, love that stuff. And as I got older, I, you know, I had friends, like, in the summer, we would, you know, watch, we'd, like, pick a, uh, like a slasher franchise and watch it over the course of a summer and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I just, I always just loved horror movies and love yeah. a good, um, good horror movie, like movie theater experience. So, Absolutely. So, and I mean, yeah. today's movie has got to be one of the all time top movie theater experiences. For I sure, mean, yeah. pretty much the whole franchise is sort of predicated on being able to capture something unique. But mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of uh, that Stephen King shelf, I definitely relate as my dad is also the same way. So uh, mm-hmm. his his shelf got banished to the basement, though. So I would go <laughs> down there and I would look at it in wonder and be like, oh, man, these c- titles are so scary. Yeah, yeah. Especially like the, the stand, like like picking that book up and being like, this is like, you know, 2000 pages or whatever it is. And just be like, I wonder what's in here. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's crazy stuff, but definitely having such a, uh, an influence like Stephen King, you know, from a young age, yeah. uh, it's no wonder, you know, that it sort of shapes the, the way that you are. Mm. So you said that when you were growing up, part of your being a horror fan was watching slashers with your friends. Was that your favorite subgenre? Do you have a favorite subgenre? I kind of like compartmentalize. I think like slashers are the best movies to watch with other people. Like mm-hmm. they're just they're just fun and outrageous, and you know right. you get to kind of scream along with your friends and stuff. <laughs> but I think like I probably am less likely to throw a slasher movie on just by myself. You know what I mean? Like if I'm just hanging out in the right. house. Sure. So uh, I would say my, my 
favorite subgenres probably is probably paranormal. Like I, I love a good ghost story. Like I don't know that I don't believe in ghosts, but for some reason that idea gets under my skin the most out of all this stuff. Well, so, there you go. It's yeah. uh, it's no surprise then that today the movie we're talking about is Paranormal Activity, <laughs> released in 2009 and written, directed, shot, produced, and edited by Oren Pelly. Get you someone who can do it all, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to cast this movie, Pelly, he just put up a cattle call on LACasting.com, said he auditioned a few hundred people before finally meeting Katie Featherston and uh, Mika Sloat, who play Katie and Mika, the two stars of this movie. And this, I mean, this movie is just so fascinating to me because on top of just being like a landmark institution in horror, I think that nano filmmaking, nano budget filmmaking is just absolutely fascinating. And they had, well, really the budget was even less, but they went over budget and wound up spending $15,000 to make this movie. (laughs) When you compare that to some of the more, I guess, AAA, to borrow some video game nomenclature, these studios spend so much money (laughs) trying to force something to happen. But when you have the right actors and the right script and you're able to capture a unique idea like Paranormal Activity does, you know, it's not about how much money you can put on the screen. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually a really good point is like, that's also the the tragic downfall of this franchise is just like, (laughs) is that, you know, it was such a good lightning in a bottle premise to start with. And it just, they just kept on going back that well and back that well and back that well. And It just all kind of like the wheels kind of come off, but I do like I, I'll I'll stand behind, especially the third paranormal activity. But I think the second one has some good ideas in it too. I feel like they all sort of have their defenders. I've seen a lot of people talking about the marked ones has been getting some love recently. I've seen so it's definitely not an idea that doesn't have any legs, but. Mm. Similar to sort of the Saw situation, which is reflected in sort of uh, the opening day, just the situation of the movie, you know, it has something to it. And then it sort of gets like flanderized a little bit. And you're still like, I still see the thing that I liked in this in this franchise down the road. But it's just like, yeah, we've both grown apart a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the paranormal activity thing, especially compared to Saw, was like, you know, Saw for most of the 2000s was, you know, it was like, it had this, this grip on October. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like there yeah, was yeah. always a new entry into the Saw franchise. That's right. Every Halloween. Every year. And it was just like a thing people, they were just sort of churning out. I think it kind of helped end that like sort of torture porn era mm-hmm. of, yeah. of horror movies. Uh, so prevalent in the 2000s. I definitely agree. And I think that it, so as I sort of alluded to this movie opened up against Saw 6, Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Saw is already a little long in the tooth, and it's the, it gets beat to number one by this young upstart, and it sort of signals the death knell for, yeah. for the Saw franchise. I mean, it's it's obviously not completely dead. Jigsaw is coming out, but that was after a pretty long hiatus. Or not Jigsaw, uh, Spiraled, but from the Book of Saw mm-hmm. <laughs> coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there was a long hiatus between that and Jigsaw, and then, you know, Seven was... Not very good, but I like six. I'll be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I, Six is pretty good. I don't. I I feel like I fell off of that franchise pretty quickly. 
So I don't, I don't, they all kind of blend together for me too. So yeah. yeah, well, yeah, especially down the road. But Saw Six, I just remember because it's uh, the person in the game is a health insurance agent. So <laughs> it's uh, it's prevalent, we'll say, yeah, in, today's, yeah. in today's day and age. But uh, that's not the movie we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Paranormal Activity, and I mean, talk about a passion project. They worked so hard to get this done. They shot day and night. They edited it right there in the camera. It was within 10 days they, they shot this movie. And they applied the visual effects literally on the computer that they had set up in the house because that was Pelly's house. <laughs> so just making it all happen right there. This is this is indie filmmaking. This is what it is. You know, like this is what it's all about. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love like the homemade quality to it. Yeah. It's so, it's so great. I mean, it captures that authenticity because it's so, because it is a passion project. I mean, I talked about this a little bit on the rec episode of this show, mm. but a lot of these, these found footage movies, just by the very nature of what they are, have to focus on an authenticity and a naturalism that other movies don't necessarily have to. And so you know, there's all kinds of interesting methods that they used in this. Pelly says that the dialogue feels so natural because they did something called uh, retroscripting, which was also used in the making of the Blair Witch Project, one of the foundational found footage movies, because there wasn't really like a script per se. It was more outlines of the stories that the actors were given and the situations. And then they uh, improvised around that, which if you're just reacting to it and not trying to remember someone else's lines, obviously that's going to bring a certain level of realism to it, given the fact that you are at least able to convince people that you're you're a real person. <laughs> yeah, like you hit on something earlier too, that like, it's weird, like it came out so far after Blair Witch, but it still kind of tried to do that thing of like, maybe this is real. Like there was still kind of yeah, like this, yeah, like, yeah. like even like the, how it opens with like the text that, yeah, it, it, it kind of presents itself as this is a, a real account. This is like evidence right. from some very, like, very yeah. chainsaw massacre as well. Yeah. 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 They, they, they sort and they use the, the actors, like their, their real names and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, with Blair Witch, there was, like, this whole kind of gimmick around it where it was, like, maybe this did happen. Like, when they hid the yeah. actors from sight. And it's it's weird that, like, 10 years had passed and, like, and Paranormal Activity, like, tried the same playbook. <laughs> yeah. Like, that, uh, yeah, that gimmick wasn't wasn't totally, uh, totally used up with Blair Witch. No, it wasn't. I think that part of the reason for that is because of just the advances in technology, being able to use a home video camera that looks good like i mean this movie looks totally fine but it is a home video camera that he shot on uh, in order to sort of capture what this would be like if these were actually the situation that was happening Mm. and you know a lot of it is sort of a stationary format it's it's almost always sitting on a tripod especially during more the uh, the scary moments it eliminates the need for a camera crew which is good for a, a small budget thing like this but it also like you said creates this degree of plausibility that they definitely tried to capture and, and that they capitalized on as well right yeah this movie actually it's screened in 2007 which is the same year that wreck did come out but it landed eventually on the desk of jason blum because around this time uh it was screening at like um some festivals and stuff and jason blum at the time was just uh like a miramax executive basically he wasn't titan of horror jason blum Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we all know today but 
you know, love him or hate him, there's really no denying the impact that Jason Blum has had on horror and the shape that it took for the better part of a decade. Definitely, yeah. I mean, Blumhouse, in addition to this, has they released Insidious, Sinister, even just recently, Happy Death Day, it was really great. Yeah. They have had their finger on the pulse, you know, as much as there's sort of the art house horror wave that's becoming prevalent today, there is, I think, also sort of this pop culture popcorn horror that has a place in society as well and that that's sort of what Blumhouse is doing and I think that they do it incredibly well yeah and they, I, I always think of Blumhouse like just doing very cool things with low budgets like yeah. I, I don't know yeah that's that's always like a really sort of inspiring thing of just like how how much you can do with a little I think that really helps drive the creative process you know yeah yeah the the restrictions definitely force you to come up with ideas so that you can get around them right and, uh, you know, Blum, he worked with Pelly to re-edit the film, but after the movie got rejected from Sundance, they cut a deal with DreamWorks because Steven Spielberg loved a screener that he saw. For yeah, this. that's such a good story. Yeah, that's so. So when I saw this movie, like there was like a phase of this movie where it was just sort of like floating around and I had somehow seen the trailer for it and was interested in it, but it was just not playing anywhere. Right. And they eventually went to this thing. It was like. I forget which website it was, but there was a thing where you could like demand it in your town. Oh yeah. And, and you could like vote on if you, you know, which cities got to see this movie. And I, you know, I voted for it to come to Philadelphia and it eventually came to Philadelphia after like a couple of rounds. And yeah, like where it was, it was sort of like, I don't, I don't know, like there was sort of like a little bit of like a, uh, I don't know, there was a little bit of a, a culture already around this movie that, you know, like yeah. that it was this like horrifying thing. And, and, uh, the, but the big thing that I, I had heard was that, yeah, like a Spielberg had gotten the screener of it <laughs> and he watched it at home. He brought it home. And while he was watching it, uh, he, he was watching in his bedroom, I guess. And his door had shut and like locked him in. Like, so it was like, so he was like at home watching this movie and his door had just like, you know, I guess he like left a window open and like the door shut and like, and he had to like call a locksmith and he was so freaked out between like watching this movie. That's really just about like, like a spooky ghost moving doors around yeah. and uh, his own door moving and locking himself in his room that he was apparently so freaked out by that, that he like returned the like drove out to like DreamWorks and like return the, the DVD <laughs> like in a trash bag. Like he couldn't even like, yeah, he like, that was like this like cursed movie. Hey man, that's enough to fuck anyone up. I, I know. Think. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love, <laughs> I love a good gimmick like that. Whether that's true or not, I, I just yeah. like, I love that story. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And, and when you got a name like Spielberg behind you, mm. DreamWorks is like, all right. And so what they actually wanted to do was remake the movie keep Pelly directing, but get new actors, a bigger budget, and just put this movie in like the DVD extras when it came out on home video down the mm. line. And Blum and Pelly were not thrilled by this, but they agreed on one condition, which was that they do a test screening to see how the original movie would fare with an actual audience. And about halfway through, people started just getting up and walking out of the screening, and they were like, well, shit. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that it was not because they hated it. It was because they were, in fact, scared shitless, which <laughs> convinced DreamWorks to uh, just leave it alone. Yeah. Until, that is, Paramount bought DreamWorks. So this created a whole ordeal with it because Paramount bought the domestic rights to the films and the worldwide rights to any sequels for $350,000, which... I mean, at the end of the day, that's quite the deal on their part. Yeah. But <laughs> the theatrical release wound up getting delayed indefinitely because Paramount put all of the DreamWorks productions on hold. 
But when a screening for the international buyers, because like I said, Paramount didn't have the international rights to this one, the sale of the international rights went out in 52 other countries. And so Paramount was like, well, shit, maybe we should uh, get in on this. And so one of the DreamWorks staff who had been working with Paranormal Activity prior to the purchase became a production chief at Paramount in 2009. It finally got its due and it, it came out. Although they did demand several changes, including cutscenes, uh, additional scenes being shot, and completely scrapping the ending that screened at festivals, which we'll talk about the various endings later on so people don't get spoiled immediately. <laughs> but uh, the ending shown in theaters during the release was changed yet again for home video, this one being the only one that actually had any actual visual effects. So it's it's interesting how this video or this movie could be such a different experience for so many people, yeah. depending on the way that you saw it. Yeah, definitely. That's funny. I, I, I wonder... I'm so I've seen it on on uh, video a couple times, so like I'm I'm wondering if I because that was the thing that kind of like didn't hold up for me is like yeah. some of the visual effects at the end and like and I'm wondering if I saw it without those effects the first time I saw it. Uh, you know, it's it's very possible. There's there's all kinds of weird stuff around it, and they they had to go back so many times where there's also an ending that was envisioned but never shot. So there's mm. a ton of stuff going on with the ending, and all this yeah. reshooting wound up costing an additional two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so they spent $15,000 to make it ad- uh, initially. And then they were like, all right, go back and redo parts of it. Let's drop 200K on one scene. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah. incredible. But I mean, the release was incredible. You know, as you, you sort of alluded to already, I remember it vividly as well. They set up screenings in just a few college towns. The closest one to us would have been Penn State. Mm-hmm. But the word of mouth was just absolutely insane. You know, that Spielberg story was going around. The people who actually did get to see it, it, it was it was just absolutely everywhere. And Paramount, you got to respect what they're doing in terms of being ahead of the curve by fostering this virality because they did this demand it thing. You know, mm. you get, you first of all, the trailers were people walking out because they were so scared. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And then yeah. you get people invested and feeling like they're part of bringing the movie to them. Mm. That's like some real William Castle shit. Like they're really utilizing the like public psychology to make this movie a hit and it totally worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, definitely like hook line and sinker for me. Like any <laughs> any any movie trailer or commercial where like a majority of the commercial is just audience like uh, <laughs> shrieking. Um, like I want to shriek like that. Like get me in there. Get me in the game. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as it expanded, you know that virality just kept being on full display. It reached number four at the box office in only 160 theaters. This is the fewest number of theaters for a top five film since box office data started getting regularly tracked. So pretty incredible accolades for it. And. It wound up earning nearly $108 million at the U.S. box office and a further $85 million internationally. That means that it grossed $193 million, making this not only the most profitable horror movie based on ROI, but in fact, the most profitable film of all time, making nearly 13,000 times its budget. That's amazing. It is amazing. And the two main actors were each paid $500. <laughs> Unions are important, people. <laughs> Wait, they never – well, you know what, though? They got to be in – at least Katie got to be in a couple more of them. Did they get – I wonder if they got better deals as, yeah, they, as they went I, along. 
uh, what I read was uh, they renegotiated later. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. What if what if for the second one it was like this huge budget thing and they were just like five hundred dollars? Like no, like, hey, you've set the precedent. <laughs> yeah, the deal stands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're grandfathered in, but in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this margin actually puts it right in front of the progenitor of modern found footage, which is the Blair Witch Project, which is at number two because it made four thousand times its budget with a worldwide gross of $248 million. So like you said, it is uh, something that wasn't exactly brand new, but people were ready for this genre. I mean, you have Blair Witch to introduce the idea, Wreck to set to like set some foundation, get some of the kinks out, and then Paranormal Activity truly just makes this genre absolutely pop off. I mean, I was looking at the history of found footage for the Wreck episode, and like, there was like five total found footage uh, movies before Paranormal Activity, including Wreck and Blair Witch, and uh, also Man Bites Man Bites Dog, which is a fun sort of horror movie, but not really. It's yeah. it's but it's like a mockumentary. Now PPA post Paranormal Activity, <laughs> <laughs> there are close to two hundred individual movies classified as found footage in the last eleven years. That's now. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's insane how much influence this has had in popularization, especially since I mean, as great as Wreck is, it's in Spanish and. As we found out from Parasite this year, not everyone in America is open to reading subtitles. And so being able to experience this genre in a way that was so accessible to modern audiences, um, it absolutely is part of why this movie has maintained its position as a touchstone in modern culture. I mean, it's been parodied to death. People recognize sort of the setup of the the shots. It's something that people know. It is part of pop culture. Yeah, yeah. Two things. I I think, like, I loved Blair Witch when that came out. But I think that, like, when there were things that were found footage after that, they were kind of, like, viewed as Blair Witch knockoffs it wasn't like Blair Witch came out and now there was this genre of found footage like I almost felt like after Blair Witch anything that had like any sort of like handheld like like found footage vibe to it was just viewed as some sort of like knockoff of Blair Witch so I feel like there was a couple like I feel like there was like other things that were sort of like in that same vein that were like attempted tapes yeah yeah so I feel like you know it's it's funny that that like it didn't really become a genre until until paranormal activity like right. everything kind of before that almost felt like it was just like a like a knockoff of like a singular movie you know like <laughs> yeah 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 but i also think with this movie too like blair witch and and wreck especially it, they're they're on a different level you can walk out of paranormal activity and and like literally make that movie that night <laughs> do you know what i mean like <laughs> it's like an invitation to like do this yourself you know what i mean yeah Definitely. Whereas, like Blair Witch, there's so, there's so much involved. There's you know like the the woods and the the, the stick things. That, you know like whereas this yeah, is yeah. just like this was just like shot in a dude's house. You know what I mean? Like for for no money. You know this movie, I think really really for better or for worse, like inspired a lot of people to just be like you know I I have a good enough camera. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just yeah, gonna do hey, it here. You know, like, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. They yeah, say, yeah. So. And I mean. This movie has spawned a franchise with a seventh installment slated. Good for them. You know, it's not easy to launch a franchise anymore. Right, right. You said that you do sort of like the other ones, but they just don't have quite the same uh, staying power for you as uh, this first one. The the third one stands out to me as as being really fun because I I think like the the first one, there was like 
it's it's lighter than I remember it being, but like when I first saw it, it was like there, it felt like there was so much dread, and much heaviness yeah, in yeah, that yeah. movie. And the second one, I feel like kind of doubled down on that feeling. And then the third one is like you know as like a prequel, and it takes place in the '80s, and it feels like a lot more light and playful. It's also a lot, there's a lot more like CG and stuff like that, so it, it feels right. kind of like a different movie. Right. But it's like like I said, it feels it feels a little bit more playful. There's like a, a gag in that movie that i i love where there's like a where there's a camera strapped to a um oscillating fan and so yeah. it like picks up the entire downstairs house and they, they use it a couple times in the movie in like such an effective way it's, it's just amazing it's, it's such a good gag for a found footage movie so I, yeah i think like the first three i definitely have love for anything after that like not so much i haven't seen the marked ones in a while I saw it when it first came out and just it didn't really do anything for me. But I have right. heard people making a case Rumbling. for that recently. Yeah, yeah so, so maybe that's something <laughs> I need to revisit. I, I also – I think that it's really interesting that you've kind of touched on how some of the more interesting installments in franchises like this that wind up going on for a while are the ones that – sort of feel like they're not necessarily from that franchise and they typically wind up being a financial flop just because people aren't interested in that in the moment they mm. go into it being like i want the thing that i know john carpenter talks about how horror movies are as close to like the oral tradition as uh, as movies get just because it's more about getting like the tropes in there and just changing the characters up and when you go to a horror movie in the moment, you're like, I want to know what I'm getting into. If I go to see a Friday the 13th movie, well, actually, Friday the 13th is a bad example because it was his mom, but I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> you expect to see Jason Voorhees when you go to a Friday the 13th movie. Right. So when they switch that up in any way, you know, not it doesn't necessarily have to be like a new character like they did with Halloween, but, you know, even something like Hellraiser 5, which I will defend to death, I think is a terrible Hellraiser movie, but it's a pretty good Silent Hill movie. And so the fact that it feels so different, I think is to its benefit. Right. And so when something is able to do that and still keep enough of a tether to it, like Paranormal Activity, I, I think that that um, definitely is, is an interesting way to keep it fresh, especially looking back with the lenses of understanding where horror has gone in the meantime. Yeah, I actually was was thinking about that a little bit, like rewatching this movie and thinking about the sequels is like, I, I wonder if this would have had more or less staying power if it didn't focus on the people, but it focused on the demon. Like it followed, like if it was right. about different people, like, like this demon haunting different people, as opposed to it like having some sort of like actual story through line from movie to movie. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if it was almost more like an anthology where, where this thing goes all over the place and haunts all these different people, you know, like maybe trying to stretch out this story over whatever, it's going to be seven movies. Like it might, yeah. might be uh, a bit much, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's definitely, see, it's an interesting idea and uh, it's very possible, but at the end of the day, we got what we got. And at least we have these first couple, I mean, mm. Critics were a little split, but they did lean towards the positive with it. For once on this show, Ebert liked something. Oh, Ebert liked it? Yes. He, oh, wow. he says that it illustrates one of my favorite points, that silence and waiting can be more entertaining than frantic, fast-cutting, and berserk FX. For extended periods here, nothing at all is happening, and believe me, you won't be bored. Uh, so I think that's probably the most glowing review I've ever seen from Dr. <laughs> Ebert. So. He's like, I like it when nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> it split the split the audience or it split the critics but at the end of the day 
the audience was there for it, and uh, it's not hard to see why. Yeah, yeah. Can I just say one one thing that will will kind of color my my choice of this movie? Absolutely. Right when you asked, I think it was actually the day you asked me to be on this podcast. Someone on my Facebook had posted some article that was about Ari Aster and about it was like an older article, but it was about how like. Um, they're trying to make a case that all Ari Aster does is like make prestige versions of bad movies. <laughs> and I like, I love hereditary. Uh, that, that is one of my favorite movies the last couple of years, but they, they were trying to make the case that hereditary is like a prestige remake of the paranormal activity franchise. Like all condensed <laughs> into one movie. It really boned me out because I, cause I, I love hereditary and I also like have a soft spot in my heart for this movie. So like the, the double <laughs> attack on my sensibility. So, so when I couldn't do hereditary of this podcast, I was like, I was like, I really want to like talk about this movie with somebody and like, and try to make a case for it. Cause when I, when I saw it in the theaters, I loved it so much and it freaked me out so much. And then when I brought my friends to see it, they all hated it. So I just like, I feel like self-conscious about how much I like this movie. <laughs> Not on the best little horror house in Philly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to like have a good conversation about this movie. So I'm excited to get into it with you. Yeah, I'm psyched to do it too. Uh, like I said to you when you picked it, this was actually my first viewing of the movie. And, you know, being immersed in horror pop culture, obviously I am relatively familiar with it, but it's one of those things where it's just like, I kind of know what it's about, but not really. And, yeah. You know, there's so much... Uh, hype around it whether it's people saying oh it's amazing or people saying oh it fucking sucks mm. and it was the same sort of thing that i did with the sixth sense where i was like uh i guess i'll get to it and i finally watched it and i was like wow it doesn't matter that i knew the twist going into it because it was fucking incredible it's the journey getting there was so good and i think that this movie is not something that people should be embarrassed about loving because it manages to capture dread, like you said, in a way that is incredible. The fact that it's able to do so much with so little, more movies should aspire to do that. Yeah, definitely. I love that about it. Yeah, for sure. So there you go, haters. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie takes place in 2006. No opening credits to keep that authenticity going. And Katie and Mika have just moved to a new house in San Diego. It's a nice little street. The sun is shining. Classic setup for a haunting story. <laughs> Mika is also the proud owner of a big honking new camera. And, you know, I think that the this authenticity, I, I've already mentioned it several times. I think that it's super important. And it is coming through immediately. I've literally had that exact conversation when I've gotten a new camera, except mine <laughs> shot like crappy mini cassettes. So you could literally only watch them on the camcorder. Yeah. Yeah. I've been like, Oh, look at Oh, you want to look on the other side? Let me flip around the screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, it's also like, it's, it's weird that, you know, th this moment in history is kind of gone where cameras are kind of novel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I think that that, that was right at the end of that idea of like, you know, now that we have a camera in our pockets at all times, the idea of just shooting everything is not yeah. is not that novel. But there was something about taking a camera out in, in the 2000s where it was like it was like it, it sort of changed the atmosphere of the room. Yeah. You're like, oh, I have to be on. Yeah. Yeah. You have to kind of be like addressing the camera or, or pretending it's not there, but like you're aware of it. Like and so I think they do a, like a, a weirdly good job of being totally authentic, but also being like totally oh, yeah. aware that there's this like imposing sort of voyeur in the room. Yeah, no, absolutely, especially because like, it's, like, yeah. an intense camera. Like, something that yeah, looks legit yeah. like that would definitely be an elephant in the room when right. you know, when you're in that time frame. 
And it's revealed through dialogue that Mika got it to capture, quote unquote, whatever paranormal phenomena is occurring or is not occurring. Since Katie claims that something has been haunting her since she was eight, uh, and Mika is going to set up the camera in their bedroom to record while they sleep, see if it captures any weird stuff. But it's obvious that he does not believe in it. I think that the dynamic between them is also really good, where he's like, do you know any tricks that we can do to rile it up and make it like make something happen? And she's like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a really great dynamic. I, I think that the chemistry between the two of them feels real. They're just doing a great job. I also did laugh at the fake out in the beginning where he like leaps up to investigate a weird noise. <laughs> he's so sad when it's the ice maker and he's like, oh, <laughs> shucks. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's fun that the, for length's sake, most haunting movies have to have a fake out or two. And I think it's interesting when uh, movies are able to do something with that and kind of incorporate it into the movie a little better than just being like, oh, it's a cat jumping out of a closet for some reason. <laughs> yeah. This movie in particular, like the, the the kind of question at the center of this movie is like, what if the sounds you hear in, at night are are actually yeah, ghosts? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and so I think that like starting with that, oh, there's a sound out there. It's it's an ice maker. Really sets the tone for all right. Like maybe maybe this is in our mm-hmm. imagination. Like or maybe there is actually something something absolutely. Going on, you know. Also, I know people give Tarantino shit all the time, and this guy is straight up like, yeah, I think your feet are sexy, and I'm like. <laughs> No one yeah, is ever yeah. allowed to talk shit on Tarantino again with this guy in the room. I love that 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 Micah or Mika is just he's just he's just like a foot <laughs> fetishist with an expensive guitar. He just That's his <laughs> that's his whole personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, you could be two things in this world. Me, I'm a foot fetishist and I have an expensive guitar. Okay, well, you know, you're you're closer than you think. My friend Jerry has posited the theory, and I, I sort of subscribe to it that since there are only four chambers in your heart, you can only love four. Mm things that's that's intense you're pulling my mind here <laughs> so, well something to chew on yeah, yeah yeah they wind up tucking in for the night at 11 24 and it cuts to 209 thumping in the hallway baby we're off <laughs> it's starting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. turns out that the keys got dropped from the counter into the middle of the floor pretty spooky I think that's a pretty good start. You know, it's not like it just fell right off the counter onto the ground where you're like, oh, you put it there weird. It was like in the middle of the floor. How the hell hell did it get there? I love that the ghost is just doing or the the whatever it is uh, (laughs) is just doing these like really, really like uh, arbitrary uh, things just to sort of get their attention. Like it's kind of silly, but also like very menacing. It's just sort of like it knows, you know. And it's just going to, like, tell you it's there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's great. And sort of that unconcerned nature, it's it's sort of the same thing of uh, It Follows, where it's just like, it's going to get you eventually. It does, it's You're playing on its time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And a famous psychic named Dr. Friedrichs comes to talk with them. <laughs> this guy. Uh, although Mika is very <laughs> dismissive of him. And uh, Katie talks a little bit more about her history with these events saying that whatever it is, it's just like a shape, like a black mass of just terrifying energy that would sit at the foot of her bed, and that there was a fire of indeterminate cause, things that would just happen periodically, and in the last few weeks, it's begun again. I think that this scene is really funny to me because it's crazy how calm she is when she's like, oh yeah, you know, flickering lights, water turning on, scratches on the wall, whispering my name, (laughs) like... Like, yeah. there's, a, there's a serious jump in there and like <laughs> yeah. she's, she's yeah. numb enough to it it's been happening for long enough already for her that like 
this is the same to her and that's that's crazy and scary to me that she's already at this point yeah yeah she's like sometimes uh when i was a kid i would hear something in the hall and then the demon burned (laughs) my house down (laughs) yeah it's uh it's intense and dr friedrich says that the haunting is following katie and it's not attached to a place and that it feeds off negative energy strongly advising them not to uh, fuck with the demon, as Mika suggests. And he basically also <laughs> says to he, they should get in contact with his colleague, uh, Dr. Johan Averys, a demonologist. And this is sort of the battle throughout the entire movie, is that Katie wants to call this demonologist and try and get rid of this thing, but Mika is reluctant to put up with, as he says, a brigade of Jesus freaks, and saying that um, they agree that it'll only get worse if they call. So... They're going to handle it on their own. Rookie mistake, but that's Mika for mm-hmm. you. <laughs> it's uh, it's night three now, and at 2.09 again, the titular activity starts up, and the door swings on its own. This time between 2 and 3.30 is known as the dead time among paranormal researchers, and it's when demons, spirits, and entities are supposed to be the most active, according to this article that I read. So there you go. And it's crazy how well they do exactly what was on display in the recent Invisible Man movie and got rightfully lauded for this, which is that it really lets the empty space do a a lot of the lifting. By shifting the actors over to the right third of the screen, you're automatically like, okay, this is framed in this way for a reason. You start scanning the rest of the frame looking for something to happen. And what's even more incredible than the way that they do that is how how shocking it still is when something happens, <laughs> despite the fact that you're like, yeah, I yeah, am yeah. literally looking for something to happen when it does. You're still like, Oh God. Yeah. Two, two things there. Like I, I, when I rewatch this movie for, for this podcast, I watch this on a tablet, which is like not the way to watch this movie, <laughs> but seeing this, seeing this in a theater, it was like, you know, this huge image and it's totally locked off, totally static. And you're just seeing, like you said, like, like the, the couples on one side and you have this whole dark hallway and you're just sitting there, your mind's playing tricks on you and you're, you're looking for any kind of movement and a kind of shadow. And also like when this movie came out, like you didn't know if you were not going to see right. anything or if you were going to see something. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there could have been a C, a giant CGI demon. There could have been a, a you know, a, a ghost. There could have been a, a, a serial killer. You know, like, you didn't like really know what to expect. You know, so you're just like watching this still <laughs> image just and anything yeah. could happen in that still image. You know what I mean? Like, since this movie's come out, there's been so many imitations and, and like, I think a lot of the things that happen in this movie have been like reduced to tropes. But like, seeing this movie for the first time, like, you really don't know what you're, what, what is yeah, working yeah. in that, in that, you know? And so, uh, yeah. So those scenes, even just like the door kind of like wiggling, that's, it was such a, a shock to yeah, see that. And you know? you know, obviously if you're able to extrapolate what that indicates, it's, it's pretty fucking scary. It's more than just mm-hmm. a door swinging. It's confirmation that something is happening here because as they point out, the door moves, the flowers do not move. So it's not like wind just blowing it shut or anything. This is scary. This is proof that it's real or at least proof to them. And I think that it rightfully freaks out Katie, uh, although Mika is eager for more and it's starting to get pretty worrying. Like it feels like he's in it for the wrong reasons. Some like somehow like he wants to like make money on the footage Mm -hmm. and you start to wonder if as the good doctor indicated might be the case. The demon feels that uh, Mika wants to communicate and is feeding on that. And, you know, Mika is like literally taunting the demon. And it's so the way that that the actors manage to capture this, like, 
hey, I understand that this is exciting for you, but let's try not to make it mad, sort of like I'm trying to be the adult in the room here sort of feeling. I just think that they do such a good job with it, and the way that the scenario is set up really allows them to make the most of it. Yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit more. Like maybe at the end we can talk because I'm, I'm really curious about like what should these people right. have done? But I think that like, I think that that's probably something once, once we get yeah, through yeah. everything, we can kind Definitely. of Definitely. We'll break to, it. We'll break but... it down. I'll, I'll even uh, yeah. I'll write myself a yeah. little note here. Talk about what's up with Mika. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Things continue to escalate, basically. Oh, well, so first of all, Mika ju- like justifies his attitude by being like, well, you didn't warn me, so I have some say in how we handle this. Like, uh, he's like a petulant child. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's funny if it wasn't in the context of a demon. <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this the conversation, or maybe, maybe it's a little bit after, but like, where, where he interrupts her, like, her bead time? I, I think that's a, a little bit further down the road, but like, <laughs> okay. It's this guy, man. You know, and and yeah, yeah, so things continue to escalate as Katie has, like, nightmares, there's banging, weird noises on the recorder, and finally, on the 13th night, after Mika is particularly antagonistic towards the demon, it angrily screeches, and there is a loud thud. The way that they handle this is so, so good, where, again, you have that lockdown shot, Uh, you're just waiting for something to happen, the scream happens, and they run downstairs, and your first indication that something is wrong is just the light swinging around and yeah yeah, and like it's gripping as you stare at it to make sure that you're not like imagining it or that it's just the camera moving and when they finally notice and like you it all gets confirmed you're just like oh shit man this is real (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah this thing is is very very angry and so the next morning mika is doing some recorder tests when he asks if they would uh if the demon or the entity because they don't know it's a demon at that point he asks if they would like them to use a ouija board and the demon responds in the affirmative and i I like that you don't hear it until they check out the tape for some reason that was way scarier to me just sort of this Mm. idea of it being there answering him interacting with him and him being so unable to recognize it that it really makes it feel hopeless for them yeah that's it's just sort of in the room yeah. with them yeah oh it's man creepy. it's yeah. it's, it's really great yeah and also like i mean I, I don't know if this is the intention but it also it also kind of like it, it kind of raises the question of like what this what this thing's like relationship with the technology mm-hmm. is right like it it seems to be kind of like emboldened by all these like means of being able to communicate yeah, yeah. technology with with Mika and, and Katie, you know, like uh, yeah, it, it, he definitely yeah. seems emboldened, and uh, it's having it's a, it's having an effect on Katie as obviously you would expect it to. Uh, on night fifteen, she wants to watch a movie instead of going to bed because she's scared. What's your comfort food movie? My comfort food movie. Hmm. My comfort food just TV just to have on is my, my fiance and I watch Unsolved Mysteries at night. Oh, hell yeah. Robert Stack's voice uh, <laughs> uh, that is very soothing. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a movie that I used to put on the DVD of, I feel like Fight Club was like a DVD oh, yeah. that was like on a lot. So I'm like, I think like the uh, menu, what I'm trying to think of like, like just like a menu song that just is, was on a lot in my right. when I was a kid. <laughs> I feel like that was, that was one that definitely was, was there I mean, a lot. it was a great one. Uh, for me, you know, in recent years, this is not going to be a surprise to anyone who is familiar with me. Uh, personally, the answer has got to be Paddington 2. Oh, nice. I just, the whole time, I just sit there with a big dorky grin on my face. Like, yeah, what a beautiful uh, movie. It's great. Uh, And, you know, I love Paddington 1 as well, but 
it's a little the the idea that the villain is like trying to taxidermy Paddington is a little <laughs> a little, little much. What what, yeah. do you, what do you think that like it, it's it's 2006? What do you, what do you think they're watching? Wow, good question. Um, I mean, the Notebook came out in 2004. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a very very good chance it's it's like a, a DVR of of Borat. <laughs> like almost 100 it's it's a dvr of borat but i think there's like a very slim chance that like this is the the, the, the thing i really hope they're watching is is uh clint eastwood's flags of our fathers which came last year <laughs> just like a what the weirdest comfort movie yeah. ever <laughs> the demon's like what the fuck <laughs> yeah yeah that solves all their problems but she does finally fall asleep and at 136 she quote unquote wakes up Although she's clearly in a trance as she just looms over the bed, staring at Mika for two hours before walking out of the room. This is, I think, probably one of the most iconic images of paranormal activity is her her just kind of staring at him over the bed with very good reason. It is just so scary to watch those numbers tick up as you're as you're watching this. Yeah, I think it's really cool, too, because like you start your, your, your eyes follow her and then she starts moving really erratically and quick. And it mm-hmm. takes you a second to like move your eyes down to the, you know, to see that the time is right. right. So it just looks like she's just hovering over him, like moving like out of time, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's such a, like a, a shock to see that initially before you actually realize like what's going on. Yeah. I, I love that, that image. <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. It sure is. And, uh, and it continues to be spooky because after she leaves, as Mika is searching for her, she's not in the house. He finally finds her outside in the cold. And it, there's so clearly something off. Like he recognizes it, it, recognizes it as well. But she refuses to come inside, and Mika hears a huge thud from their room. When obviously no one is there, he was just talking to Katie right there. And he runs up, and the TV is on as well. And he's like, "What the fuck is going on?" Yeah. And Katie appears and is like, "What are you doing? Like, come back to bed." Which, of course baffles him even more this sort of like rapid fire bafflement of mika i think is done so well and it really i think shifts the focus where it starts to feel like instead of just messing with katie this is because of mika's engaging with the demon the demon is now engaging with mika as well yeah yeah I also, like, I, I don't know, there's something that's, like, really so odd about this whole sequence, too. It's just, like, I don't know, is she supposed to be possessed or, like, what? Like what? what's going on? And, like, the fact that she just, like, sits outside, it's such a melancholy kind of thing. She's just, <laughs> sort of like, sitting out in the backyard, like, staring off. She's just cold. It's really unsettling and like in like a whole different way than the rest of the movie like like just oh, yeah. that this I agree. yeah just that she's just kind of like outside staring off and she's not she's not doing like a dazed possessed kind of thing she's doing like she just looks sad like there's just something like so mm. accepted this fate that that defeated yeah, she feels defeated yeah, it's so bizarre like i, I don't know I, I really like love that like in the rewatches like of this movie that that scene always really stands out to me because it's just like you know especially also like this sequence kind of breaks some of the haunted house rules, you know, like Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. she, she is like possessed by this thing or, or or whatever. And and she, she goes outside and there's something like extra kind of like unsettling and threatening about 
about her just kind of like being in the backyard, <laughs> like it's staring off. It makes it feel also like the demon, its power extends beyond yeah. just the interior of the house exactly. as well, like, which like the fact that it's been following her, it can mess with her anywhere. It can force her to do things. It really sort of shifts the power dynamic and lets you know exactly what this thing is capable of in a way that we hadn't been hitherto. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that the demon's a little sad. It's a little, a little sensitive. demon. <laughs> yeah. It's a little melancholy. Yeah, it's, just, guy. it's just looking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he's freaked out. Katie doesn't remember it the next morning. And he's he's super freaked out. And so he brings home a Ouija board. And he's like, you said don't buy a Ouija board. I borrowed one. Uh, And she is understandably furious about this willful misinterpretation of his promise. What a scrub. It's really, it's something, man. My initial review is uh, Bad Boyfriend Hall of Fame. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) First ballot. Uh, they they leave the house and the camera records a ton of movement around the room before the pointer on the Ouija board forms a message, which Mika erroneously translates as Diane later down the road. But it in fact says Mika before moving to goodbye and spontaneously combusting, which is just about some of the scariest goddamn shit I've seen in a long time. Yeah, that's such a practical effect. Like it's it's so like rinky-dink looking but it also yeah. been really effective in a weird way because of that yeah and, yeah. and th- just the whole idea of the demon is like this is gonna be hilarious in like two hours like i'm doing this for later yeah yeah that no one's in the room and it's just doing this to fuck with them for when they watch the footage down the road yeah it's so funny, like, I don't think a lot about, like, how effects are done anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I've, I've like, trained my brain away from, like, seeing something happen in a movie and, like, wondering how they did it. Because, like, you know, the answer now is just computers all the time, you know? Like, right. And yeah, so, like, yeah, watching yeah. that, I'm like, well, it's clearly not CGI, right? But it's just like, yeah. like, what what are they doing in that scene to make this thing just kind of, like, jump around and then just, like, light on fire? <laughs> like, it doesn't look like it's uh, it's super, super complicated, but I'm just so curious about, like, what... What exactly they did there? I, I genuinely don't know. It's, I mean, my gut is probably just like, uh, like had a fishing line or like a fishing wire, yeah, and like yeah, pulled it, and then like someone like off frame just dropped like a match or something, and uh, well, no, because they they couldn't edit that out, so yeah, well, I guess they could, but I don't know, I don't know is the answer, and that is movie magic, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's great. Like you said, the fact that it is so rinky-dink lends, again, to that authenticity. It makes you feel like it's happening in that world and not just being like, oh, it's computers, of course, whatever. Who gives a shit? Yeah, you're, so. you're definitely seeing that thing move. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's, it's it's not not moving. <laughs> so during night 17, after they've seen this now, Mika has the idea to sprinkle baby powder in the hallway and outside the bedroom door. And, like, I guess it's a fine idea, but he makes it so easy to step over. I was like, this friggin' guy, <laughs> man. But luckily for him, or unluckily, either the demon is as dumb as he is, or it wants him to find it, which is what Katie thinks, because they are awakened by creaks and find these, like, freaky frog-looking footprints. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're weird-looking. This this whole scene um, is, like, where the movie just goes, like, just to 11. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's kind of, yeah, like, yeah. like, gradually ramping up, and just in, like, one of these nights, they just do so much, and, like, <laughs> and it's it's so funny. It's like, you're, you're watching this movie, and you're like, oh, it's it's a haunted house. You know, like, uh, there's a ghost or something. You know, like, and you're, you're thinking about this all in, even though there was, like, that demonologist, so you're still kind of, like, trained to think of this in in sort of like ghost tropes and that scene where you just see these like 
cloven hoof prints or whatever they are. Like just, uh, yeah. it, it, it's freaky. Yeah, it really like, uh, it changes the game a little bit, you know, it's a physical presence in the room. And the fact that they lead in, but not out. Oh man, it's so good. Just like, it's such a fun detail. Yeah. And they follow the footprints to the attic to see where it came from. And Mika finds a burnt photo of a young Katie in the attic, which is, you know, that may be a trope to find like fucked up photos of whoever's in the house, but goddamn, it's still good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. When they find it, you're like, oh man. And Katie's like, how did you like? Where was that? Oh, man. Also, it's so. What good. a flex for the demon, right? Like he's just been yeah. he's just been <laughs> carrying around this photograph since like 1986. <laughs> like he's just been like hanging out. Like he just has like a little like demon pouch that he's just been keeping. This yeah, like I, I think it's like a fun fanny pack that he picked up along the way. <laughs> he just has little <laughs> just keeps his souvenirs. Yeah, just in little it. trinkets from people. He's like he's uh, he's haunted. He brings them over and he's like, "This is Katie's photograph." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's it's a great scene, and this is enough to finally push Katie over the edge into calling the demonologist. But she learns that he is in fact out of the country. One hundred percent Mika's fault. One hundred percent, and she lets him know it. They are doomed by his toxic masculinity and inability to ask for help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I love this, her little, like, you are powerless monologue uh, here. It's great. Yeah, Yeah. it really is great. And he he answers by saying, you're too cute to be talking. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, like, got to be top ten worst things you could say to someone. Yeah. And the role of Dr. Johan Averys was actually cast with a real paranormal investigator, Spencer Marks, but for budgetary reasons, his scenes were cut. And I actually prefer that he doesn't show up at all. I like the feeling of isolation that it provides. And I think that we would have had a much less effective movie if we had other people constantly coming in and out to help them out. I mean, we see Katie's friend show up a couple times. Like you said, uh, Mika interrupts their their bead time. (laughs) And uh, and she <laughs> she invites Katie over and Katie's like it wouldn't it wouldn't help like what am I going to do like mess up your life too Yeah yeah and that isolation that she feels wouldn't be possible if they had help coming in the form of a demonologist One of the cool things about this movie and a thing that I like when horror movies do this is that there's there's really like no third act of this movie do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. like there's no like part where it's like okay we understand this this creature and now we know how to stop it yeah, it's just rising. It action. just rises. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a motocross jump. Like it's just like you're you're on this like this rinky dink uh, dirt bike and you just go <laughs> off and you know you never come down. You know, so I think like bringing in a demonologist, especially at that point, would signal something like that, or would become something like that, where it's like it's like that person would empower them probably to right. to figure this thing out. And I just like that they just. How, how could they? No such this luck. Thing out? Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. they don't even really know what they're up against until it's way too late. You know. So I, I think it's such yeah. a good move to just not include that character at all. I agree, and I think that the path that it sets them down is really great as well. Where they call Doctor Friedrichs instead, who says that he'll come tomorrow, and the demon does not like them reaching out for help in this way, and it literally throws Mika to the ground when he goes to investigate the door during that evening's hauntings again sort of escalating the situation in a way that it hadn't before in that it's now having physical contact with him the way that the steps of this movie are measured is like pitch perfect Mm. the each escalation is just enough more to be like oh yeah yeah there's a really good sort of mirror shot 
callback to the beginning where they were they're waiting for the psychic like they were at the beginning of the movie and they're eating dinner just like they were at the beginning of the movie but now they're not talking much less joking like they were at the beginning and they're eating takeout instead of this home-cooked meal from before yeah i really like that yeah yeah it's really great and it just drives home how much the situation has degraded yeah especially when they're interrupted in the middle of this by another thud as their picture shatters on Mika's face, getting all scratched up and the glass is broken and Katie feels it breathing on them. It's so scary. And you're so frustrated at the same time. Like I really feel like Katie is the empathetic character here on, uh, and so much more than Mika because sure. he literally never listens to her as, as he goes to check it out instead of coming downstairs. And this is also the first daytime occurrence. So again, another big escalation uh it's just a really great great scene yeah it, it also it, it it breaks the rules in a really nice way like like you've only seen this thing at night and now it's like you know it's, it's coming during the day and like you know when you're a little kid and you're you know you 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 hear sounds in the in the in the hallway or whatever and it gives you the creeps and like it, it, you get the sense that like monsters can only get you at nighttime, do you know what I mean? Like, well, that's that's the case. Yeah, yeah. It's just sort of like, <laughs> uh, nah. Like, like this thing's just with you. It's like breathing on you. It's you know, yeah. it's talking into your recorder. It's doing all this stuff. It's just always there, kind of watching. You know? No, it's it's very very freaky stuff. Yeah. And the parapsychologist does come back to the house, but he is immediately just like, hmm, actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> He just, like, apologetically leaves, and he's like, I'm doing more harm than good by being here, but uh, I'll help, I'll help, don't worry, he's not gonna help. And they lose all hope at this moment, and I think it's really, like, pretty sad. Katie is like, I didn't want it to be like this, and you really feel for her. It's like a big, exciting step. She's moving in with her boyfriend, and, you know, they're young, and he's doing his day trading, and she's studying, uh, she's hoping to become a teacher soon, and, like... You're just like, oh, man, this sucks, Katie. Yeah. Like, this shit is happening yeah. during uh, what should be a great time. So, sad stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I do love that that psychic. He's like, I could <laughs> I could never turn a, turn down a, a trip to, was like, Long Beach or, or uh, San Diego. San Francisco. Yeah, 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 where, yeah wherever they were. And uh, he just... West Coast, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. He literally <laughs> just, like, rolls in, gets, like, into the door, and he's just like, no, fuck this. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. You guys are on your own. See ya. It's very funny. Yeah very funny scene but it's again sort of that like bittersweet comedy where you're like i'm laughing because it's like it's funny but also like the what's funny about it is just like how hopeless it clearly is yeah yeah and on night 19 the demon lifts the sheet and grabs her foot again this is just more and more of an actual impact on them Mm. and mika finds a random website that he claims uh, the same exact thing that the ghost got madder and madder and and messed up the hauntee even more after they called an exorcist. But I paused to look at that page and it's saying that pre-exorcism, she was basically living completely in the dark and only grunting, going so far as to gnaw most of the arm meat off of her upper arm. So yeah, it seems like Mika is using that phrase a little liberally. You know what's funny about this scene is I when I decided on this movie I I, I purchased this on on Amazon. Amazon has like a 
like a thing where it has like the the trivia like on the side like you can kind of watch like with like a extra screen with like uh, the trivia on it oh yeah the x-ray thing. yeah the x-ray thing yeah and the person who plays the the woman who was possessed on the website like just pictures and like that quick little video there's so much trivia just about like that lady <laughs> it's it's fucking amazing like her name's ashley palmer the character's name is diane and they they just have yeah like where she went to school like uh what what broadway off broadway plays she's done and all this like a whole like stream of trivia about her yeah yeah that diane thing is what led mika to her because he thinks that the ouija board said diane goodbye that's right yeah. uh, and so this is this is how he finds this this exorcism case but it, it's just so funny and she freaks out and he's such a little baby and like they get into a fight and he correctly says that she didn't do anything wrong about this Ouija board but he never apologized and he's so clearly in the wrong you're just like friggin Mika man it's it's great again it, it sort of adds to that authenticity where you're like I feel like I know who this guy is yeah 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 <laughs> and it turns out unfortunately for them that the demon was just testing the waters on night 19 because on night 20 uh katie is pulled out of the bedroom and the demon attacks her in the dark and this is where this sort of lockdown framing really is at the height of its power because the camera is not moving and she's pulled out of sight and you're so used to the camera going wherever they go that when it gets taken away, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. I, I yeah. can't see anything. Yeah. <laughs> and you just hear the noises and it, it makes it so much more effective. Yeah, that scene is so effective. I think also because the speed at which it happens. Like, I feel like if that were in a movie with CGI, it would happen so fast. Do you know what I mean? And that would be like what yeah. they're relying on is like a shock of it happening fast. But in this scene, it just happens so slow that she has enough time to wake up, realize it's happening, and realize that she needs—be scared—and realize she needs to wake Mika up before she even leaves the room. Like she's like pulled out of bed, she's on the floor, and she just starts screaming his name. He wakes up and sees her get dragged out of the room. They're like, it just happens at such a slow, deliberate pace. It's really, really, really effective. It sure is, and this is. Pretty much, as far as uh, Mika is concerned, the last straw, and they're going to take their chances at a hotel, and honestly, I think that's a pretty good idea, at least get more people as witnesses, you know? But Mika wants a shot of, quote, the thing on her back, which is revealed to be a Galdern bite mark, absolutely terrifying when he just like the offhand way that he refers to it so vague and then Mm. it's truly shocking yeah yeah no that the bite mark is yeah it's terrible and a mere few minutes later katie is completely unresponsive and mika notices that she's holding a cross so tightly that her hand is just gushing blood mika takes the cross and burns (laughs) it what? You know, yeah. it's so. I don't know what he thinks that's gonna. It's accomplish. so funny how just just how impotent Mika is in this whole situation. Yeah. It's just like kind of like symbolic gesture is like now now I have, have defeated the demon. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's like the one thing that she is, or sort of seemed like you know was protecting her in that moment. He's like, all right, yeah. I got this. And he burns the cross <laughs> of all things to burn. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Literally, the one thing that you'd be like, this might be protected yeah, in some way. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it's it's very eerie. And just as Mika is ready to go, Katie is, quote-unquote, back. And she insists that they stay. And Mika stomps off, which I thought was very funny, where he's like, I don't even know what's happening anymore. And Katie says to nobody, 
I think we'll be okay now, and smiles right down the barrel of the camera. And God, it's so eerie. Mm. It's just so good. That night, night 21, Katie does the get out of bed and stare at Mika thing. You know, she does it again. Classic bit. Don't fix what ain't broke. And the demon removes his sheet. And she stares at him for another two hours before going downstairs. And despite the fact that this has been constantly rising action, you know, this is really, there's a huge, huge spike of just intense, intense shit that happens here. And I love this final scene. It's sort of the same thing with Wreck, where if you can pull off a powerful final scene that people will remember, that's how you get people talking about your movie, you know? That's why people were talking about it and wanting it. And the fact that they capture this incredibly powerful moment at the very end, you know, that's that's what it's all about for them. So Katie, she like I said, she went downstairs. And after a moment of silence, there's just a blood-curdling scream from Mika. And he books the hell out of there. He, like, parkours over mm-hmm. the bed. It's pretty great. And then he, again, runs out. We don't take the camera with us. And... He, we hear him screaming as well, but this time in pain. And Katie stops screaming. And after another moment of silence, you just hear these heavy footprints slowly <laughs> coming up the stairs. And it's so good. Yeah. Just taking away this sense that you've become so reliant on, the rest of them, you're just straining to get any idea of what's happening. Yeah. I, I love that that anticipation of just you know you're just staring at this doorway your your focus is all forced against this stairway into this darkness and you're just anything can walk through that door at that moment you know what I mean right it's great I love it <laughs> yeah you have no idea what to expect yeah. and they take full advantage of that because what comes out is in fact Mika's body flying out of nowhere which knocks the camera off the tripod and as he falls. It reveals Katie standing in the doorway, soaked in blood. Amazing, amazing shot, the way that they pull this off. And she slowly walks in, totally casual, gets down and, like, sniffs Mika's body. (laughs) (laughs) So scary. And then she looks into the camera with this shit-eating grin on her face. (laughs) And then she just lunges out, and her face contorts into a demon. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, and it's so, so good. And then text states that Mika's body was discovered by the police on October 11th, and Katie has vanished. So I, I think that this is so effective. What do you think about just sort of the way that this all comes together? Although we will talk about the the other endings as well. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it 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 works really well for me. I think like I've seen some of the other endings, and and there's definitely one that like I. I feel like makes a Prefer. little bit more sense, but like does not open up the sequels. And I think, I think like this is probably, probably the best one just because it, it leaves it open to, you mm. know, for there to be more going on. But, um, I love Mika coming through the door. I think that's such a great thing. It's great. I don't particularly love the kind of CGI, like demon face thing uh, a little mm. bit, but, um, or some of the, the, the sound design there, but, but I, yeah, I think, it, I think it's great. I think it, it also like, like I said, there's really no third act and like, you're, you're kind of like signaled that we're getting down to it before the scene happens. But like yeah. but going into this night, you're not like a hundred percent sure that the movie's just going to end here. Right, and also, right. you know, Mika just like leaves the room and you're, the last thing you expect is just for him to like die off screen totally unceremoniously, you know? Like, yeah. So it's, it's cool that they kind of, they, they don't 
uh, totally signal what's going to happen next. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I do I do like this ending. There is one ending. I guess the one that wasn't filmed. I don't know if you want to get into this stuff now. Sure. Yeah. So there are three endings plus an unfilmed mm-hmm. one. The first, which is the original ending that DreamWorks made them reshoot, is Katie wakes up. Stands by the bed, goes downstairs, she gets Mika, and basically the same stuff happens, but it's quiet and she comes up the stairs and and instead of the body flying out, Katie comes up with the bloody shirt and a bloody knife, in fact, the same one that Mika had been waving around while he was cooking dinner and threatening the demon, and she just sits by the bed, bloody, rocking back and forth for hours as the camera rolls by. And her friend finally comes to visit the house. She freaks out about Mika being dead on the floor, (laughs) as you would. And she leaves. And then finally, when the police come, they see the body, go upstairs, find Katie. She snaps out of her trance, panics, says, where's Mika? And when the police tell her to drop the knife, she doesn't. And shocker, the police murder her in her own home. It's it's a very realistic ending. It's, I think, very scary. I think that this would have been a very effective uh, ending to it. Yeah, yeah. I think, it, like, I think that that ending, if this were just a one-off, that's probably the better ending. There's something about it ending with the with the police that brings it in into the the real world a little bit more does it make sense yeah yeah her ultimate demise comes not at the hand of this paranormal activity but in fact normal activity yeah yeah but it, but it also like it also makes you kind of question like how many murders uh, are yes. are like you know there's there's some like other thing going on there do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. and i i think that that's kind of that's kind of uh, a cool way to go is like that sure. that to to these cops and probably to the rest of the world this is gonna just look like a a uh a murder yeah uh, just a, a murder <laughs> and like a psychotic episode or whatever like that there's gonna be yeah, no yeah. paranormal thing happening you know right why would they expect that yeah yeah so it's it's kind of that's kind of an interesting way to go i agree the second ending which is the theatrical ending and the blu-ray ending is the one that we talked about that we just saw. So this is the one that aired. And then there's the third ending, which is the alternate ending. It was on a handful of pressings of the DVD and also was just shot. It's very similar to the original one, but instead of the police killing her, she comes back upstairs, closes the door behind her, approaches the camera and slices her own throat with the knife that she killed Mika with. Yeah. Boy, that is intense. That's some heavy shit right yeah, there. Not not a good not a good ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the the final unfilmed alternate ending, she bludgeons him to death with the camera, which is brutal, complicated, probably would have caused some motion sickness. But so, but, but truly the perfect ending to this movie, right? Like yeah. that's, that's Oh my god, it's such a fun idea. Yeah. The impracticality of it, you're like I get why they didn't do it, yeah. but like it's god, it's it is really really great. Yeah. It would have been such a cathartic moment too where like this thing that she's been like, get that out of my face all this time. He yeah. talks to it. He's like, oh, kiss the camera. Like, oh, I'm talking to, like, look at this beautiful thing. You know, so much of this camera feels like an intruder in her home. Yeah, yeah. That using it to be the instrument that takes out Mika, that's a, that's some poetic justice right yeah. there. Yeah, I was doing some some reading about this movie, and I, I found some sort of like very academic, uh, it was like a textbook and there was this quote that I found on here that I, I, I really liked uh, about this, not about this ending, but just about the, the relationship with the camera. It says, he may need the camera, but the camera does not need him. By the end of the film, the camera shifts from working for him as a tool propagating his self-image as alpha male 
to working against him, becoming a witness not only not only to his failures as a partner, but ultimately to his murder. And it's like that that concept that he's kind of like using this camera as like you know to like prop up his his self image or whatever, and then that camera like actually like being like bludgeoned to death with the thing. That's like such a nice like poetic a little ending for that character. It's it's great. I agree. I, I think that this is I think this is a great way to transition into our what's up with Mika conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So why don't you sort of lead us off? I'll give you the platform. I, I have a lot to say about this guy too. So okay. So first, first big question about Mika. So I, I, I made like a little like list of questions I, I want to kind of discuss. But like my first, <laughs> Let's my do first it. very big question about Mika is like, do you think that Mika bought the camera to make amateur porn and is using it as a guise <laughs> to catch the paranormal activity, or do you think it's the other way around? Like, he's just hoping to catch some amateur porn on this thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. You know it. I think that they are probably about 50 50. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah. he is certainly very eager and tries several times to get it going, including trying to leave it on recording after she's like, okay, that's off, right? And he says yes. And then thankfully, she is on to his ploy, which is genuinely illegal. He was like, oh, what we just did was illegal in 27 <laughs> states. And I was yeah. like, I think that probably was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess the other thing is like is like do you think that this was uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen the sequels but like let's let's pretend the sequels don't exist do do you think that this was caused by Mika filming it? Yes, I absolutely think that Mika is at the core of this. Problem. Okay, so you think that this wouldn't have happened because the sequel is like the sequel is definitely like that's not really what's at play. Like they were just like damned from the start. Really? Yeah, yeah. But like, but yeah, it definitely seems like this movie is trying to say that like Mika filming this. This, this happening is kind of the reason why it amplifies. Yeah, and so like, absolutely. I'm kind of curious, but like, yeah, do, do you think that this is like, because Mika is like calling attention to this thing, it like, it feels emboldened and it comes out. Or do you think that they are just like completely screwed from the jump? Uh, I think that it's sort of a fucking like peacock, uh, dick measuring contest between the two of them. I, I think that, you know, I, I definitely think that they it might have continued to fuck with Katie for the rest of her mm. life, which certainly would have sucked. But I think that the fact that Mika escalates this so many times, despite Katie's protest about, please don't anger this. Uh, I don't want any of this to be happening. Like, I don't want the camera. I want to call this demonologist. The only thing that they actually might have gotten a use out of Mika puts the kibosh on for two weeks until he's out of the country. And so many times the, the guy who came to actually ch like talk to them and, t and tell them about it, he's like, don't taunt this thing. And the right. first thing that Mika does is taunt it. And the fact that this is sort of like a legacy for the demon who's like, okay, like this guy, he's an asshole. Right. Right. <laughs> he's questioning me and my abilities and <laughs> like, it'll be on record to, to scare other people and captured that way uh, and really like create this sort of Freddy like lore yeah. like with yeah. you know it's yeah. I think that all of this sort of hinges on the way that Mika reacted to gotcha. it. Gotcha. We've reached the point of the episode where we talk about why this is in fact the best horror movie ever made and we uh, we summarize it for the good people at home so uh, I'll let you uh, kick that off. Okay. I think that like to me, well, first off, I think like this, the scares are, they're just nice and simple at a time when sort of horror movies were pushing more towards like extreme as scary with like, you know, the kind of torture porn, uh, like hostile and, and so on and stuff like that. It's kind of pushed back a little bit. It was all about 
silences and stillness, anticipation, you know, those like locked off shots where, uh, you know, you're just, you're just sort of like looking for something to happen in the frame. You know, all that stuff was, was really effective compared to, you know, at the time it was you know, like movies were doing things like, uh, you know, like what if we skin this woman alive and throw her to like a pit of needles <laughs> or whatever, you know, like. You know, kid stuff. Like this, this kind of brought everything back to something that was like a little more elemental, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's certainly more accessible to a general audience. Yeah, for sure. And I think like the fact that it's like it's literally a homemade movie, it kind of puts it in the same line in a weird way of like like Evil Dead and like Night of the Living Dead. You know, a, a thing like a movie like you could really like do yourself, you know, like had a super low budget. It was contained in like one location. Like this is a movie like you could, like I said, like you can make this in your your bedroom tonight. Do you know what I mean? And I think it like, it, it kind of inspired a lot of like uh, DIY filmmakers to kind of like go after something like this. It was a, it was a great, great theater experience. I love a good, you know, uh, uh, a good horror movie where everyone in the, uh, in the room is, is terrified and, and reacting out loud and where you know, a whole room of people's all on the same page. But I think like what really, really boils down to just the fact that like, I don't know, it kind of takes for me, like it kind of takes horror back down to like, it's essentials. You know, like it, it feels like a good ghost story. It feels like a haunted hayride almost. Like it, it just, it just gives you the creeps. It makes you jump, makes you a little uneasy, you know, like going to bed the next night. It kind of just does like all those things that like a good ghost story should do. It, it's, it's creepy, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I think that the fact that this movie is so stripped down mm-hmm. is part of the beauty of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's it's a huge inspiration to so many people. I think that nano-budget filmmaking is so fascinating, and this movie is a true testament to what you can do with a little bit of money and a lot of passion. And I think that it, it really just... It, there's something so beautiful about that, and so movies to me yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. that I, I just love yeah. that. And I think that on top of that, this movie would fall 100% flat if the acting wasn't perfect for what it called mm. for. I'm not saying that this is the best acting. It's not like, oh, Daniel Day-Lewis, but it's perfect for what this movie needed. It is, they feel authentic. They feel real. And they feel, and that, yeah, they feel mundane. Exactly. And that accessibility translates it lets you put yourself in their shoes yeah. i am also not daniel day lewis <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, so the fact that i'm able to relate to them much more it just makes it so much more effective and the minimalist scares the fact that i'm terrified just seeing a, a friggin picture frame shatter all of this stuff is it's it's working so effectively with so little, and uh, I just love that so much. Yeah, so. yeah. I think it's like it, it's just like it's such a basic thing, uh, you know, to be a you know to be like in bed at night and hearing like creepy sounds and like letting yeah. your imagination go wild and like it's it's a movie about like well what if what if those creepy sounds were actually something you know like and I, yeah, exactly yeah, it captures a simple idea yeah, and yeah. that simplicity is beautiful. That's that's what makes it so effective and. That is a pretty universal experience. Everyone gets creeped out by the shit you hear at mm-hmm. night. And that accessibility and universality, to me, is why this is the best horror movie ever made. Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was an absolute blast. And fuck the haters, man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thanks thanks again for coming on to Talk Paranormal Activity. And uh, why don't you tell the good people where they can find you? Yeah, so uh, my fiance and I have a uh, we, we do uh, sketch comedy, do some stuff live, but we have a lot of videos on YouTube. We're the Incredible Shrinking Matt and Jackie, also in a sketch group on the Flat Earth. This spring, I guess, or I'm sorry, this fall, I guess, if uh, everything 
if anything goes back to normal, I'm going to be doing a show for the Fringe Festival. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's going to be, we're going to make like little, uh, kind of like short films and do like a weird little, uh, movie sleepover <laughs> for, uh, the, for the Fringe cool. Festival. Um, so, uh, that's called Incredible Dreams Part 3, kind of like a weird little, um, I think I've done a couple with uh, uh, Andrew Jeffrey Wright and Rose Luardo of uh, the New Dreams. They're like a performance Sounds art. awesome. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, uh, if you're into into found footage movies, my uh, fiance and I a couple years ago were in a found footage movie. Oh. Yeah, there's uh, this movie, this guy in New Jersey made this movie called Bad Ben, um, which is on Amazon Prime. And we're in Bad Ben Part 3, the final chapter. So, there you go. Uh, yeah, so if you ever want to check that out, it's free on Amazon. Sounds fun, and I'll definitely yeah. check that out. Uh, and as far as my plugs, you can f- check out littlehorrorphl.com. That's got the podcast right on there if you feel like not listening to it on a podcast app for some reason. But it also has the RSS feed and links to all the places that you can find Best little horror house in Philly related things, including merch, social links, <clears throat> all that jazz. Subscribe if you're not already subscribed for some reason, and uh, leave us a rating and a review if you would be so kind. And that is pretty much it. Uh, thanks again, Matt. Thank you. Bye, everyone.